thanks for the uh, wonderful VBS announcement. Uh, so every time I see Jerry Capazzi now, I just say, there's the apostle. So he loves that. If you just greet him by that title, Apostle Jerry, he loves it. Yep. So much energy. Well, this morning, we're continuing our study in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, you can turn to chapter 3. It's where we'll be today. But we're going to be talking a little bit about the topic of revivals. And I don't know if you've ever participated in a revival, or maybe you've witnessed a revival. Maybe some of you have even studied revivals uh, in church history. They're always very interesting and so different from one another, it seems. Because a lot of things are going on during those time frames. That God's, God's at work, obviously. You know, He's stirring people's hearts and He's drawing them to uh, His Son, Jesus Christ. That's all going on. But at the same time, you know, our adversary, the evil one, Satan's busy at work too. And he's stirring up people and stirring up emotions and thoughts and ideas. And then if that weren't enough, then, you know, we have to deal with ourselves, you know, and people and the way they respond to things. And, and it's just a very interesting thing because there are so many different mixed results that come about in the midst of revivals. Because some is wonderful and we see people actually getting new spiritual life. They come to life and true life in Christ, and their life is radically changed. But then there are other people who only appear to be spiritually alive, but they're still really spiritually dead. I mean, they go through all the emotions, and sometimes these people are just self-deceived, thinking that they've received something when really they've not. And other times, they just like to deceive other people about what really happened. There are some distinguishing marks, though, that have been uh, noted throughout the centuries and how we can tell the difference. Uh, but just a few of them, there are so many that if a person has truly come to faith in Christ, I mean, they are going to be, first of all, enlightened by scriptural truth. And they're going to rightly apprehend what is in the scripture and what it says about God, and they're going to see God for who He is and all His beauty. They're going to want God in Himself, not just for things that might be of interest or of value to them. So in other words, they really want God and just God, but not all the benefits that God could give them. They're also going to have their natures changed, of course, I mean, by the Holy Spirit, and they'll actually put their faith in Christ, but it's going to be evidenced by permanent changes in their lifestyle, not just transitory ones. And of course, they will start to resemble the very character of Jesus Christ himself and the chief character quality being humility. So, and all of this kind of stuff will be testified to other people who actually know these people really well, and they'll know that there's been a change. But then there are so many people who don't really come to spiritual life during revivals. At first, they appear like they do because, you know, it's just such an exciting time, and they can get swept up in the emotions of the moment, the spiritual interest that, that is there, they're involved in the activities. They might even go through the expected motions that we put on them and testify to experiences that they didn't really have. They're emotionally there, excited about religious life. They might even be fluent and be able to talk about the things that they've heard, and they have a false confidence in where they really stand before the Lord God. And they really don't want progress in their life as far as knowing God deeply and and seeing uh, and having their faith grow, but they just simply want to be where they are at the moment. So many other things could be said, but let me, let me pray for us as we look at John or Luke 3 this morning. Oh Lord God, we thank you for your scriptures because in them we have truth and we have life and we understand what it is to have a true affection and a love for you in the gospel. And we pray this morning that you would build that within us and give us greater faith and clarity of thinking we pray this morning, too, that you would help us to become even more discerning by the Spirit on what are true signs of people's conversion, even our own, and what are the signs of assurance that we have in our life that we belong to you. And we pray these things for your glory, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. Now, of course, there are many other ways you can distinguish between these two types of people. Uh, there are various types in the midst of revivals. You know, one of my f favorite uh, revivals to study was, of course, the First Great Awakening here in America back in the, the mid-18th century, 1740 or so. But there's one preacher who is, of course, the most predominant in the whole thing, and that was George Whitfield, who would come over from England and preach and go home, and uh, quite a dramatic guy. But uh, 
but he would often say, after people respond, uh, would say to him, like, oh, this was such a successful, uh, you know, revival or, or campaign, and he'd say, well, we'll see. And, uh, and I can quote him, he said, I'll be back next year and we'll see the truth, unquote. That's what he said. So time will tell. You can't always know immediately. What you know, the same kind of thing was going on actually in the Jordan Valley in AD 29 under the ministry of John the Baptist. A revival was going on that the Lord had started there. And so that's what we're looking at today in Luke 3, 1 through 20. And we're going to learn about the true signs of true salvation by looking at John the Baptist's revival ministry. Now we'll read the story as we go because it's a very lengthy passage and it's more interesting to read it as we go. It's printed in your bulletin for you too, so you can actually mark it up as much as you want. Um, but even from this point in the history of redemption, I mean, it's really interesting that, that Luke is spending so much time telling us about John the Baptist because you think, well, all that stuff sort of passed and Jesus has come and he's died and he's risen again and, and we can just move on with the story. But this is so important to him to tell us because he wants us to rejoice in the revival ministry of John the Baptist and realize that John still speaks. Make ready the way for the Lord. And so Luke records the ministry of John because it still prepares people to receive Jesus Christ. And assuming that you have received him, it should increase our love for Jesus and our growth in grace by the power of the Spirit. So in verses 1 to 6, to give you a simple outline, we see John baptizing because Christ is coming soon. That's why. And then in verses 7 to 14, he teaches, and he teaches basically the same things that Jesus Christ is going to teach. And then in verses 15 to 20, he points us beyond himself, beyond his ministry, to what is truly important, and that is the mighty Messiah, Jesus Christ himself. And so John is the final prophet of the Old Testament period. He's the forerunner of the Messiah. He's actually the first proclaimer of the kingdom of God. And we left off the story of John the Baptist way back in chapter 1, verse 80, when he was eight days old. That's the last time we heard about him. Well, now is the day for the fulfillment. It says in Luke 1:80, and the child continued to grow and to become strong in spirit, and he lived in the desert until the day of his public appearance in Israel. Well, this is the day of his public appearance in Israel. Now is the day for the fulfillment. And there are so many different directions we can go, and people and pastors have gone and exploring the ministry and, and the power of John the Baptist's work. But this morning, we're not going to do that broad of a survey, but proceed through what Luke is presenting to us. And he focuses really on the content of what John the Baptist was preaching and how it's applicable to all of us, to all people around the whole world. Now, we've already learned a lot about this man uh, from chapter 1, but I want to take a brief look back. If you turn back to chapter 1, starting in verse 13, and we read there, But the angel of the Lord said to him, to Zechariah, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John, and you will have great joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, and, and he must not drink wine or strong drink until he will be filled, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from the mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready the Lord, a people prepared. And he'd be God's prophet leading this national revival, preparing people by repentance, by putting their hope solidly in the Messiah who would be on the scene soon. And then we hear Zechariah's prophecy concerning his son in chapter 1, verse 76. And he speaks to his child, to John the Baptist, and he says, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. See, John would be the prophet of the Most High, just like Jesus would be the Son of the Most High. John would fulfill the prophetic word of Malachi chapter 3 and Isaiah chapter 40, which we've seen and we're going to continue to see. And the preparation you see that he's doing is he's giving people the knowledge of salvation, specifically the forgiveness of sins and how those would come about because of Jesus' work on the cross. 
And so the people would enter this salvation that John is preaching by repenting of their sin and putting their hope in this Messiah who would be on the scene very, very shortly. And so you see, as we read through the story, we understand that John still is speaking today through the text of Scripture. But we can still ask the question, you know, why is John baptizing? I mean, there's so many questions that, that swirl around the story and the person and the ministry of John the Baptist. And so hopefully today we'll, we'll answer some of them and give you some more clarity in this. But first of all, there's this, the timing of John the Baptist on the scene is what Luke introduces to us in the first two verses. And then he'll summarize his ministry in verse 3, in one verse. And then he'll talk about how John's ministry fulfilled prophecy in verses 4 through 6. So the time of John the Baptist, it says, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John. And this introduction should remind you of the Old Testament in a way the prophets introduced themselves. In the time of so-and-so, in the time of so-and-so, and what was going on in all these political agendas and religious agendas, the Word of God came. And the Word of God came to John. And this is how Luke introduces him. He is the last prophet. There have been 400 years of silence, but God now speaks through the final prophet of the Old Testament period, John the Baptist. And he will bridge the Testaments. It'll be the dawn of the new era of the Messiah. The 15th year of Tiberius, he's the emperor at the time. And uh, it would likely be August, sometime between 28 and 29 AD. Uh, this emperor reigned from 14 AD to 37 AD. So he was emperor when Jesus died. The regional Jewish leaders who were in favor of the emperor were all descendants of Herod the Great and his dynasty. And so we're introduced to Herod Antipas, which was his son, and he ruled over Galilee, which was uh, north of Judea and Perea, east of Judea. And he also was reigning when Jesus died. Then there's Herod Philip, who is another son of Herod the Great. He reigned over Iturea and Trachonitis, northwest of Galilee. He also was reigning when Jesus died. Then there's Lysanias over Abilene, further northwest of Galilee. We don't know anything about this guy. Then there's Pontius Pilate, the governor of Judea. He was governor when Jesus died. Then there's Caiaphas, who's the reigning high priest at the time, and of course, the son-in-law of Annas, the famous one. And they, he maintained, Annas maintained influence throughout his whole life. But Caiaphas was high priest when Jesus died. You see, we're introduced to these characters in the story. They're going to play a prominent role in the rest of the book. We're introduced to Herod, to Pilate, to Caiaphas, and to Annas. And there are all sorts of political and spiritual agendas going on around at this time that were afflicting the Jewish people. But Luke announced that it was at this time, in this midst of turmoil and confusion, the Word of God came. And the Word of God came to John in the wilderness in AD 29. And the Word of God coming to him refers both to his prophetic calling that he would have and his commission to preach. And it would also refer to the very message that he would be preaching to people. And so then we get a summarization of his ministry in verse 3. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So John moved from living in the wilderness to the Jordan Valley, and he began preaching and baptizing, and it was all in relationship to the forgiveness of sins and getting true salvation in the Messiah. Matthew in his gospel records, now John himself had a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt about his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem was going out to him, and all Judea, and all the district around the Jordan, and they were being baptized by John in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. See, John's baptism was unique in the history of redemption, and it lasted only a very brief period of time, 
in this unique ministry until the Messiah came. And his baptism is a baptism that came directly from God without any antecedent, without anything that it was sort of based on. It wasn't really based on Old Testament washing rituals. It wasn't really based on some current proselyte baptism. It wasn't really based upon the cleansing baptisms of the Essene community, which he would have known about at the time. It wasn't based on any. It was a baptism in preparation for the Messiah. It was unique. And to submit to John's baptism was a radical commitment to be ready for the Messiah, that you believed he was coming very soon. And it was through this ministry and this baptism that God was actually calling out a people for his son. And God would bless them with the fulfillment of Jesus' ministry, which was baptism by the Spirit. Jesus would baptize with the Holy Spirit. And even then, he would institute a fulfillment, if you will, of John's baptism in Christian baptism. John's baptism was a preparation for the real thing. See, John's baptism was a sign of what would be the real baptism by Jesus Christ in the Holy Spirit. This is one of those times where it's, it's a good time to mention to you as a follower of Jesus Christ that if you haven't been baptized, you should seek to be baptized and fulfill the commands of our Lord and be a faithful follower of His. Actually, we had a baptism here last week, and uh, it was a wonderful celebration of what God was doing. So if you're interested in that, I'd be glad to meet with you. So back to our storyline. So then we learn that John fulfills this prophecy from Isaiah chapter 40, and we read, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his people, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level and all flesh will see the salvation of God. Luke quotes this section of Isaiah 40 much more extensively than Matthew does in his account or than Mark does in his account. And because he wants to emphasize so much of what is going to be happening in the rest of the book of Isaiah. See, you may or may not know, but starting in Isaiah 40, the book of Isaiah takes a major turn. And everything starts pointing so clearly, so dramatically, so gloriously to the ministry of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And what Luke is saying is, John started that. He got to announce its beginning. In fact, that's why so many of our favorite passages as believers in Isaiah come from chapter 40 through 66, because we see in them just how clear they predict that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. So John started all of this in his ministry. He's the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. And his message to the people is very simple. The image, though, of all these road improvements should not be missed or mistaken as, I mean, they're all about improving the road for a royal procession to come, but the reference is not primarily physical, it's the spiritual condition of your heart. That's the exhortation from John the Baptist, is to do this in reference to oneself, to one's own heart, to be prepared for the Messiah. What's the condition, the spiritual condition of your heart this morning? Well, then in verse 5, it's also noted that, you know, the Messiah is going to come whether you're ready or not anyway. He will show up regardless of people's spiritual readiness, and he would fulfill the word of the Lord. So you better get ready because Christ is coming. And there's even, of course, a future fulfillment, and especially as we read the prophets, Isaiah 40 through 66, we know Jesus is coming back. Well, he's coming back regardless, so you better be ready for Jesus to come back. But then notice Luke's chosen emphasis in verse 6, that all mankind will see God's salvation. So Luke purposefully quotes all the way to the end of this section because Luke loves this last phrase. And this becomes so evident as you read through the whole gospel, that all mankind will see the salvation of God. It's pointing to the fact that Jew and Gentile alike will see God's salvation in Jesus Christ. That's what the prophet foretold. Luke is also pointing out that he would soon appear in the person of Jesus, so they would actually literally get to see the salvation of God. And of course, it's pointing way beyond this 
to when Jesus comes back a second time and we will get to see the salvation of our God. But there's a whole lot more on this later in Luke and we'll save it for that. But John baptizes quite simply. The reason he baptizes is because Jesus is coming. That's why. And he would baptize those who were truly repentant. Have you made your heart ready and received the salvation of Jesus Christ before he returns a second time? Have you humbled yourself and repented of your sins and put your faith for forgiveness of sins in him alone and his work in the cross? I mean, I've run into so many people that say things like, oh, I'd love to put my faith in Jesus, but what they're really trying to do is put faith in themselves or trying to get themselves good enough for God or trying to do enough religious activity that somehow they might be pleasing to him. These things don't please God and they don't lead to salvation. Jesus paid it all on the cross for us and we need to put our faith in him alone to save us from our sins. We can't save ourselves. Now hopefully you've already been through this and that it's the fullness of your life to walk knowing that you've been forgiven and that God loves you. We see John still speaks through the scriptures, make ready the way of the Lord. He speaks like a revivalist, like an evangelist. Prepare yourselves. Jesus is coming. So next we look at what John's message is, and we learn as we go through this, he really just teaches like Jesus teaches. Surprise. You know, no surprise. And John teaches this way, and he teaches themes of judgment and repentance in verses 7 through 9 in that paragraph you'll see. And then we get examples uh, in verses 10 to 14. Those are helpful too. And so it begins, he said therefore to the crowds that came out to be baptized to him, you brood of vipers. What a wonderful welcome from a revivalist preacher. Yes. You brood of vipers. Says, who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees, and every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So multitudes of people, and the other gospel writers attest to this, multiple people from Jerusalem, the city, from the surrounding region of Judea, and the Jordan Valley, they're coming out over a, a period of time. We don't know exactly how long this revival lasted and uh, being baptized by John in the Jordan River, probably months. Well, God is at work in many people's lives, very obviously. He's convicting people of their sin. He's uh, building within them this longing that they want to be saved. And he's stirring up their spirits for hope that maybe the Messiah could really be here. This is exciting. And so they want to go and be a part of what God is doing. But at the same time, that that type of crowd is going out, there are other types of people, because it builds on itself. More and more people are coming out. There are people that are coming out because they're curious. A lot, a lot of people like religious shows. They do today, too. In fact, hopefully you don't think you're coming to see a show today, because we don't do shows here. But people like religious shows. There are people that were going out there because they're opposed to John. This would be a great time to catch him in what he's doing. And other people, of course, they want to get baptized, but they're deceived of what's really going on. But they figure, well, it can't hurt. Maybe if I get baptized, I'll get saved from the wrath to come. So Matthew, Matthew in his gospel account, he picks out the religious leaders and picks on them. But Luke, in his recounting of the story, he references all sorts of people in the crowd. When he says, you brood of vipers, that means a bunch of poisonous snakes. It's an image of being opposed to God. It's an image of destruction. And perhaps, perhaps even like snakes, they're beginning to feel the heat, and so they come out. You know, that's what happens in revivals. The Word of God draws them out. And they're trying to escape the coming judgment by maybe going through the motions and they wanted their false security and their baptism without their repentance. Common problem in revivals, very common. We've probably seen it ourselves. I mean, it's, not, it's true in American revivalistic history. It's true in other places around the world. Maybe if you've had an opportunity to travel and be a part of those things, you've seen it. You've seen the two groups. I mean, sometimes it's almost as clear a day on their faces. These people are coming because they really want Jesus. 
And then these people, you think, ah, they're just here to write a news report. You know, and you look at these other people, it's like, they're bad news. You want to stay away from those people. I mean, you can almost sometimes see it. And so he picks out these people for their religious hypocrisy, their foolish trust in their religious ancestry. It kept them from truly fleeing the wrath of God and truly repenting and truly putting their faith in the true Messiah because they thought that they were safe because of their religious ancestry, their self-righteousness in their religion. Because they knew who the sinners were, those were the other people. They're obvious to find. And the Gentiles, of course. Those people need to repent. But not me. Not my family. We've been going to the synagogue for years, the temple for years. And many people, Jewish people, didn't feel like they had any need to repent. And John's baptism, in a way, was a repudiation of how Judaism had gone down the wrong path, taking people into error. It's interesting, I think, here's another similarity with what we often see today, especially in American churches, and that is people who grow up in a Christian heritage. I mean, it's a wonderful blessing, but at the same time, it can, it can trip some people up and they think that, well, my parents went to this church, my grandparents went to this church. So-and-so was a deacon, so-and-so was an elder, so-and-so was a trustee, you know, We've been here my whole life. I went to VBSs, went to Sunday school, and people can trust in the religious behaviors to actually save them. Or if they don't have enough themselves, what another strategy is you marry somebody who's more spiritual than you. Because then you assume that, well, maybe, maybe I can be, get saved through my wife's spirituality. It usually goes that way. Women are much more spiritual than men, I found. So, but to fully appreciate the Christian heritage and to be in line with it, would be to personally put your faith in Jesus Christ. To step back and ask the question at this point in your life, do I really believe what my parents and grandparents have believed? And to put your own faith and have your own faith in Jesus Christ. Now, going back to our story, you know, if they really desire to escape, escape the wrath of God that his Messiah would, would exercise, they should put forth proof of, proof of repentance, John says. Don't just tell me. Show me. You know, the Apostle Paul would preach the same thing in his defense before Agrippa in Acts 26. It's recorded this way. I, Paul, kept declaring both to those at Damascus first and also at Jerusalem and then throughout all the region of Judea, even to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. They should stop trusting in their heritage, for this isn't going to save anybody, and God doesn't really need them for his glory anyway. I mean, he says, God can raise up children of Abraham from stones. In fact, this has, this has uh, multiple levels of meaning here. In one sense, of course, he has to raise them up from stones because that's how hard our hearts are. It requires the supernatural work of God to remove that. And at the same time, it's a, it's a really a sort of a interesting reference to Gentiles. and saying like, well, I don't need you guys anyway because I'm going to go get some more people from around the world. So it's a real slam on them. And the image of the axe already being laid at the root of the tree is a common prophetic image that says judgment's imminent. It's coming any day now. So if you're not repentant, when the Messiah comes, you're in big trouble. And so the Jews are in danger from their own Messiah who would be on the scene shortly and he would either bring salvation to you or judgment. And then we get some examples then. So in verses 10 to 14, these are really interesting examples, actually. At first you may think, well, that's pretty obvious, but that's the point. So, and the crowds asked him, well, what then shall we do? And he, John the Baptist, answered them, well, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you're authorized to do. Soldiers who also asked him, and we, what should we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusations and be content with your wages. So Luke is the only gospel writer to actually record the teachings of John the Baptist. And so here John gives very specific advice to those who are seriously interested in wanting to know what it would be like to be a penitent person. 
And so to the crowd, John is elaborating really on verse 8 here that we read earlier. And he's saying to them, well, if you have an extra tunic and food, you should share and you shouldn't hoard it. And as you can see, it's like, well, that doesn't seem like a really profound application. It's pretty straightforward. Um, you know, repentance really isn't that hard to figure out, is it? But I mean, that's the point. Is that if we've truly been given a new nature in Christ, ethical behavior is like second nature. It just happens. It's obvious that those things would take place. But to those who are not truly saved, these things sound like really important, profound things. Because those who are not putting their faith in Christ but trusting in themselves are looking for things they can do to get God to save them and love them. And so then he goes on, the tax collectors, you know, these are people that most Jewish people don't like at the time. Um, I haven't met anybody who really likes a tax collector, but back then it was even worse. Um, John makes the straightforward application of only collecting what's properly due. These are Jewish people that are working for the Romans, so they're very unpopular among their fellow Jewish people. They're ashamed to their family. I mean, it'd be awful to have a son who's a tax collector. And they, get, they got banned from the synagogues. They weren't even allowed to go worship. And tax collection at this time was very complicated. It wasn't regulated very well. They would bid for their positions in the structure of tax collecting, and they could keep whatever extra they could get. The system's just filled with all sorts of fraud, graft, other abuses. But you see, true salvation is going to bring radical change. Some of you know what it's like to work in this kind of a work environment and how Christians really then stand out from the culture of the job. But then to the soldiers, John instructs them, don't, make, don't take money by force, don't falsely accuse, be content with low pay. They weren't paid very well. That's why they did all those other things, supposedly. These are also Jewish men. They're mercenaries in the service of Herod Antipas. And they make their living by shaking down people through extortion and blackmail. Does this sound familiar? And well, again, the gospel brings true transformation and radical change to people's lives. And notice how in all these examples of repentance, they all have to do with money and possessions. And how when a person repents and truly believes in the Messiah, those things change. Attitudes change, motivations change. Of course, actions change as well. And these are areas that we can look for where God can work change in people that would be a sign of true salvation and repentance. So they're to live honestly and righteously, basically, in the midst of a corrupt world system, to be reformers even of that system. So John teaches really just like Jesus taught. So you probably, just in these three examples, were already thinking about things that Jesus said later on. And if you haven't thought of that, you, it'll become clearer soon enough as we go into the storyline of Jesus. So who is this repentant person that we've been talking about, that John's looking for? that Jesus is looking for, that God is looking for today. Who is this repentant person? It's the one who looks to Jesus and is ashamed of his own sin, confesses it, and turns from it. This is the one whose mind and heart and life is changed because of repenting and putting their faith clearly in Jesus Christ as the only hope and the only one who can transform a person's life. That's the repentant person. And it can only be accomplished by the very power of God. And so when we see it, we recognize it. Now, it appears that John's advice here is very simple to apply in anyone's life situation, even in yours. I mean, what would John the Baptist say would be evidence of repentance at your workplace? in the culture of the place where you work, maybe, in your life situation, what would a sign of that be? Where are the things that are wrong? And what are the things that Christians then would do that are right? You see, John still speaks, make ready the way of the Lord. But what is John really all about? It's way 
more. It's so much more than what we've already read in the passage so far. I mean, if his first theme was judgment and his second theme was repentance, his third theme is that the Messiah is greater. And that's where we go in verses 15 to 18. This is the real focus of our passage and the passion of John the Baptist's life and ministry. So as the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn up with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached the good news to the people. So everybody's talking about John the Baptist at this point. I mean, that's what happens when a revival sweeps through a community. It's a widespread revival, preaching, ministry, baptizing. People are naturally wondering, well, maybe he's the Christ, but here you can't see it in the English. But in the Greek syntax, it gives the sense that they really knew he wasn't. But you know, that's how we are as people. You know, they're sort of wondering, well, maybe he is, but no, he can't be. And that's how they're, they're thinking at the time. And John then speaks directly to he, the questions he knows they're asking in their hearts and relating to his work. And he said, no, the Messiah is going to be way more powerful than me, more exalted and mightier. You know, so you think about the comparisons. John's the preparer. Jesus is the fulfillment. John baptized in water, but Jesus will baptize with the fiery spirit. John preached repentance, but Jesus is going to purify and refine like you've never seen before. So John, with these words, reveals his humility before the greatness of the Messiah. And he does with this with the imagery of the slave's duty of the time of untying the sandal of his master. John says he's not even fit for that duty. I mean, we skip right over that, but you think about that. That's like, was he just exaggerating? Or is that really how he thinks? I mean, it sounds so extreme because John's revival was extensive. We would say it was a success. Yet in comparison to the mighty work of the Messiah, John's thinking of his ministry success is really not that much. Because the difference is gonna be so great between them. Maybe the people just can't see it yet. But he's famous for saying these words recorded in the Gospel of John, that when he heard that Jesus came on the scene, so John's still doing his revival, maybe it's sort of waning at this point, but Jesus is gaining his own disciples, and he hears about that, and this is John's response. He says, he must increase, but I must decrease. Those are really good words for us. You see, because often we think we are so important. We think our ministry is so effective. We think that we're so valuable to God. Isn't he lucky to have us? Or to have church X? Isn't God blessed? But he must increase and I must decrease. We'll come back to this in a moment. But John baptized with water in regard to repentance and preparation. We already sort of went over that for the ministry of the Messiah. But Jesus is going to baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire, purification, refinement. So what's the meaning of Jesus' work of baptism here with the phrase, with the Holy Spirit and fire? It's important for you to realize these are not two different baptisms. It's not being baptized with the Holy Spirit and then being baptized with fire. Uh, this is a, a, a syntax issue. And these two words are used to describe one baptism that Jesus would perform. And so you could just simply say he'll baptize with the fiery spirit or the spirit of fire. Those types of ways of thinking. It's a baptism that's going to consume and purify and refine. You see, the meaning is clarified for us in the next phrase. Because the other image that comes forth is a winnowing fork. And so that means that Jesus in his ministry, he's going to separate the wheat from the chaff, the truly repentant ones from the non-repentant ones, the ones that truly have faith in him and the ones that don't have faith in him are just pretenders. You see, like fire, Jesus with the Holy Spirit is going to do two things. He's going to bless and purify believers and further purify and refine them in our lives. And at the same time, he's going to mark up and burn up the apostates, 
And that's what we'll see as we go through the Gospel of Luke. It's a phrase that really encompasses a whole lot. It encompasses the whole ministry of Jesus the Messiah in actuality. So it has both this broad reference and, of course, some specific references, but it refers to his whole work with the Holy Spirit, all his teaching. Think about the things he taught. Whenever he taught, he divided people. It, 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 it covers all his deeds that he did. It covers the salvation he accomplished and the perfecting he now accomplishes through the Holy Spirit in the lives of his people and, of course, judgment when it comes on that day. But, of course, it also refers to his bringing of the promise of the new covenant, the Holy Spirit, to indwell the people of God. It refers to that, too. So with the Spirit, Jesus is going to be performing this twofold ministry of blessing his people and judging his enemies. And purification has works at both levels. It works at a community level. God can purify a community or a, a congregation. And it also works at a personal level as well. And he separates the true from the false, and he makes the true truer still. And if our faith is in Jesus Christ, we welcome that ministry in our lives. We love that God continues to work on us. In John chapter 15, you know, Jesus talks about how he's the vine and we are the branches and how the Father prunes so that we bear more fruit. You see, this is what Jesus did and he still does by his teachings and his message. Even with Luke's gospel, you know that that's part of the reason Luke's gospel is there? It's for us. It's to purify us, to refine us as disciples. And one major part of Jesus' ministry, of course, was the actual pouring out of the Holy Spirit after he ascended into heaven. Pentecost is the occasion of when it was fulfilled in history, in the history of redemption, and the prophet Isaiah, the prophet Ezekiel, the prophet Jeremiah, the prophet Joel, they all predict this time frame, and we see it fulfilled in Acts chapter 2 where Luke records it. This baptism, this outpouring of the Spirit upon all believers would be a major sign of the Messianic age that we live in the last days. So Jesus' baptism with the Holy Spirit and fire is to be understood as a large category, not a fine point. It doesn't have a reference to one discrete item. Think about the things that the Bible says that Jesus would do through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit would cause us to be born again. The Holy Spirit would seal us for the day of redemption. The Holy Spirit would assure us of salvation. The Holy Spirit indwells us as children of the Father. The Holy Spirit washes us from sin. The Holy Spirit enables us for righteousness. He comforts us in our distress and guides us in truth and directs our ministries and gifts us for, in power and unifies His people. Do you see that we've been blessed and immersed in the Spirit of God, that is, baptized? You see, then verse 18 is another ministry summary. It's just like verse 3 in its summary, and it says simply here, so with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. John preached the good news, the gospel, with many other similar exhortations not recorded. So just to be clear, <clears throat> The gospel includes both repentance and faith in Jesus. That's what conversion is. Conversion has two components. It's repenting of sin that you recognize and also putting your faith directly in Jesus Christ. That's what's involved in the experience of conversion. Well, then we get to verses 19 and 20 where John would be put in prison and executed by Herod Antipas. And so we read here, but Herod the Tetrarch who had been reproved by him for Herodias his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. So Luke jumps ahead in the story here. And uh, he jumps way ahead to when John gets arrested and put in prison months down the road. But Luke wants to basically get John's story done before he starts Jesus' story. And so it's virtually completed here, we see in, in the Gospel according to Luke before we enter into the preparations and the coming on the scene of Jesus. So John had no qualms about publicly denouncing immoral Jewish leaders. No surprise. But he's so upholding true spirituality as an example for the people. And he spoke out against Herod because of Herodias and, and on other matters, just like 
his pattern, Elijah, right? John came in the power of Elijah. So it's just like Elijah would do, he would do. So Herod didn't, wouldn't respond like the crowds did. You know, Herod didn't go get baptized and repent. In fact, Herod Antipas divorced his wife on purpose to marry Herodias, who was his other brother Philip's wife. Yeah, he had two brothers that were both named Philip from different mothers. Yeah, that's how it worked. And likewise, she divorced her husband to be involved in this illicit marriage. It was a public scandal that everybody knew about, and it was a violation of God's law. I mean, it's like the Netflix original of its time. That's what it was like. It was so bad. Everybody was talking about this, and John the Baptist points it out. So he condemns the actions of Herod and all the other wicked things he did. Well, that's going to shorten your ministry. So Herod then added to his lit litany of wickedness by putting John in prison. But you know what? The interesting thing is he's still afraid of John. Yeah, he would listen to him on occasion, but he never repented. What an interesting character. We'll learn a lot about this guy as we go on. Eventually, Herod would have John beheaded by the scheming of Herodias through her daughter. If you want to read the full story in color, it's in Mark chapter 6. And you can read the whole story. It's a really fun story. So John is an example then of suffering for the gospel and with really minimal success. I mean, he gets this great revival, but it only lasts a matter of months. And then he's in prison. And so his ministry doesn't seem to have much success, or minimal anyway. Well, God would not leave Herod alone. He, God would torment Herod. It's really fun to watch in the rest of the gospel. He would torment Herod by his own conscience. So later in Luke, in chapter 9, we'll read this, starting verse 7. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard of all that was happening, meaning all that was happening regarding Jesus and his ministry and his healings and his teachings and people following him. He's hearing all about this stuff. And the text goes on to say, and he was greatly perplexed because it was said by some that John had risen from the dead. Well, that'd be scary if you beheaded the guy. And by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen again. And Herod said, I, had my, I myself had John beheaded, but who is this man about whom I hear such things? And he kept trying to see him. But Jesus wouldn't see him. But Herod would see Jesus again one day, because Herod would show up at the unjust trial that would lead to the crucifixion of Jesus. And he would mock and he'd participate in crucifying the Lord of glory. Oh, how intriguing the story of Herod is. But you see, John points to the mightier Messiah. That's the real focus of this passage this morning. John is a great example of humility before Jesus. You think about that phrase, he must increase, but I must decrease. How does it capture our lives and our ministries? It's an excellent question for reflection and prayer, for evaluation and how we think. And as we move forward in our lives and we'll gain more influence in, in people's lives and in, in churches and we'll be entrusted with more and more ministry and service, and we should desire that Jesus gets more and more of the honor and the credit and the focus and the recognition. And we should desire ourselves to recede more and more into the background so that Jesus can be glorified all the more. That should be, both of these things should be our desire, that Jesus increase and that we decrease. Not just that Jesus increase, which is what we often pray, but that we decrease and so that Jesus gets the glory. It's a good principle to pray through in your own ministry your ministry that you might have here at this church or ministry you might have elsewhere, it's a wonderful thing to pray through. You see, John's purpose is really to point us to Jesus. John doesn't care that much about himself. Jesus' ministry would be the fulfillment of his. I mean, the message of John the Baptist is really simple, repent and believe in Jesus. He said also when Jesus came to him and people saw him, John the Baptist says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's what we need. So Luke desires for us to rejoice in this revival ministry of John the Baptist, and he records this ministry 
so that it will prepare us to receive Jesus if we haven't. And if we have, that it's going to just increase our love for Jesus and our desire to see Jesus more glorified. And hopefully that's been your experience this morning. And hopefully you still hear John speaking and preaching the gospel of repentance and forgiveness. You know, just as John's ministry was divisive, Jesus would be divisive to two, two, and we're going to see that as we go through the Gospel of Luke, and even more divisive as he starts talking about his return, which we'll also see in the Gospel of Luke. But John's preaching works just as well in calling people to repentance today as it did then, and as it will today for the final day as it did for that very first day when Messiah came on the scene. And soon, verse 5 in our passage today is going to be fully fulfilled. And there'll be all blessing, and there'll be the finality of judgment, which we all do long for, too. We want righteousness. Luke 3, 5 says, Every ravine shall be filled up, and every mountain and hill be brought low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places smooth. And we will see the salvation of our God. You know, in our passage this morning, there's also a lot of hope. You know, we can, we can sense, we can, we can feel the judgment. I mean, it's pretty easy when somebody says, you brood of vipers. I mean, that this is not a nice thing to say to people. But there's also a lot of strong hope in this passage. Um, promises for salvation from sin. I mean, that's like the best thing ever to those who truly repent and put their faith in Jesus. I mean, you can be forgiven. Your life can change. Your heart can change. Your motivations can change. You can be cleansed and not have to feel guilty and ashamed anymore. That's what John's preaching. There's a promise for all the nations here in verse 6 that all mankind will see the salvation of God. It's for all people, all people around the world, of all times. This is the mission of the gospel. And there's clear teaching here, as simple as it is, on what a life of repentance looks like. And how that life works itself out, not in just mere duty, but in a real joy in God and a delight to live our life to please him. And we see that in verses 10 to 14. There's also in our passage this promise of the greater ministry of the Spirit of God, that we live now in the age of the Messiah and the Spirit that we get to experience. And we experience it every day in our life and in our ministries. So may these blessings from this passage Uh, be yours. May they be lasting. May they be increasing. Let me pray for us this morning. Lord God, we thank you so much for the scriptures that you've given to us as your church, that by them we know truth, by them we know you, by them we can grow in our knowledge of you. And this ministry of John the Baptist was so thrilling. And pray that you would continue to cause us to be amazed by it this week as we meditate and reread it to our, and reread it to ourselves. And to understand that it really all just points to you, Lord Jesus, our Messiah, our Savior, the eternal Son of God, second person of the glorious Trinity, and how through the Holy Spirit you cause our lives to be new, to be constantly under renewal, and to put within us a hope for the final day when we will see you, Lord Jesus, in all of your glory. And so we pray these things for your sake. Amen. Amen.